want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, nice. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going? Good. Uh, we're in a bit of a role reversal from last week where you've seen much more than I have. Yes, well this is what happens when one is stuck in a car for two days <laughs> uh, with a with a, pl- uh, a way to charge the laptop but no internet and uh, nothing else to do. One gets caught up. <laughs> I still am not caught up, though, because I, I haven't seen last week's or this week's extent or the bridge. So it's, I, you know, we'll see whether that is the thing that changes or if I'm just too behind. And so I, you know, cut cut ties with those shows. But I, I kind of doubt I'm going to make time for extent moving forward. And uh, same or thing Halle with the, the bridge, just because there's too much. There's too much. Yeah, and then fall is coming up very quickly. But uh, now this was a good week, and looking forward to talking about it. Uh, two episodes that we're going to be talking about had heavy metal songs, so hmm. that was a big plus for me. Well, uh, we'll we'll get to that soon. Uh, as previously stated, I was mostly away from internet this week, so there's there, there's not a lot of feedback, but uh, listener feedback here at the top. But I do want to mention, of course, that at the end of the podcast, rather than a DVD shelf, I will again be airing some of the composer interviews I was able to do at uh, at Comic Con this year. Uh, first with Steve Jablonski, who was the composer for Desperate Housewives, as well as you know the Transformers movies and a, a bunch of other action big you know giant blockbustery uh films um and then dan licht who is the composer of dexter and there's a dvd or a cd of the the music for the final season of dexter that's coming out soon that people can check out if they're they're fans of that series they will probably enjoy it there's we talked a little bit about his process for for composing and putting together the the cds of the music for dexter and i know that's a very thoughtful and lengthy process for for him and uh so i think people will appreciate that and brian reitzel shows up for a little bit at the end of that one as well we have a bit of a freeform discussion about the state of tv uh composing right now um so anyways that's all coming at the end of the podcast and hopefully you you all will enjoy it i will mention that again like part of the Brian Reitzel interview from last week, there's a lot of background noise. Uh, and that's because there are a lot of people all talking at the same time at various points in the room. So uh, hopefully you guys will be able to understand what we're saying. Uh, I'm able to to hear it, which is why I'm putting it on the podcast. Um, but if if it's too frustrating for you guys, you can just kind of skip forward to the end. The end of the composer interviews this week, the last uh, 10 minutes or so, is a lot a lot more manageable to listen to. So hopefully you guys will enjoy those. But um, yeah, it's it was a very full week in TV. So I think we're just going to jump right to right to the shows. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. So we'll be, take a break and we'll be right back with our week in comedy. Boys are a bore. Let's show them the door. We're, we're taking, taking over the dance floor. floor. Oh, 
Comedy. I'm going to preview Garfunkel and Oates, the new comedy uh, with that, of course, that comedy duo that's on IFC. Then I'll talk a little bit about the partners pilot. They come together. Uh, and then we'll both talk some Wilfred responsibility, um, Adventure Time, Princess Day, Married, The Getaway, You're the Worst, Keys, Open Doors, and Gravity Falls, which had its season two premiere, Scarioki, and also its second episode, Into the Bunker. But first, Garfunkel and Oates. Now, uh, people will be aware of this uh, comedy duo, I would imagine. If they're in fans of the comedy scene, it's Kate Micucci and Ricky Lindholm. Uh, people would know Kate Micucci from being Ukulele Girl on Scrubs, maybe. And Kate, uh, Ricky Lindholm, uh, for me, the one that sticks out is she's Conrad in Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. Um, so they're both, you know, actresses in their own rights, and they also have a comedy song duo called Garfunkel and Oates. They have a new show on IFC that's starting up this week with The Fadeaway and um, also Rule 34 I've seen. So I've seen the first two. And the, it's, you know, follows the two of them around their, their lives. They're playing versions of themselves. And uh, and so we, we hear them sort of make composing some of their songs, getting their ideas, uh, having different things come up. In the first episode, uh, Natasha Legero and Anthony Jeselnik show up. In the second episode, um, there's <laughs> there's Chris Hardwick, there's Ben Kingsley, uh, Abby Elliott, uh, Chris Parnell, Steve Agee. I mean, there's there's you know there's a lot of people who show up over the course of the the series. I particularly enjoyed Tignataro and um, and Chris Parnell. I would say. Uh, in these these first two episodes, but uh, the the second episode I actually liked better than the first episode, which is usually uh, uncommon. So uh, that that's a positive sign for me. But uh, the 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 show is it's it's not maybe the most helpful thing. But if you like their music, you'll probably like the show. I think they did a good job of translating their sensibility and sense of humor into the half hour format, and um, it was a bit. I wasn't really laughing as much in the first episode, which I, I enjoyed my time with the characters, but I wasn't really laughing out loud. I laughed a lot more in the second episode, which features a uh, course. It's called Rule 34. And Rule 34 of the internet is that if you can imagine it, there's a porn version of it online. And so the duo meets the meets the porn parody star, the stars of the porn parody of them online. Uh, so, and, and watch the, them rise to fame, basically. So, yeah, you know, I, I, parts of that really worked very well for me in the second episode. The the song in the second episode involves Muppets and is adorable and really lovely. Um, so I, I think I enjoyed that one a little bit more. But it's one that if I had just seen the first episode, I don't know if I would have checked back in. But having seen the second one, I liked it quite a bit more. Uh, I think I, I will probably dip in, in, in and out with this one. So kind of wait a little bit and then, then marathon a bunch of them all at once. Are you familiar with Garfunkel and Oates? Not at all, no. I've heard the name thrown around, but I, it's something that's just passed me by. Yeah, well, then you'll have to you know, check out the the, uh, the pilot this week and let us know what you think. Because uh, with comedy, it's just so individual. It's uh, hard to, to know whether to recommend it. But I would say, again, 
Yeah, if you like their music, you will probably like the show, and it seems like it's a really good fit for IFC. So it fits nicely, as far as I'm concerned, with like um, Portlandia and some of these other IFC comedies. So I think IFC has done a good job of establishing a brand for themselves and uh, and, and finding talent to fill that. So this is, seems like it's a good pairing. Uh, less of a good pairing is the everybody involved at Partners, uh, which is the new FX comedy, and and just just why. Why? <laughs> now, this stars Kelsey Grammer and Martin Lawrence as a pair of lawyers. Uh, one of them is uh, despicable, has no ethics or morals, and is is rich. And one of them is uh, lots has a lot of uh, family pri- ethics and pr- priorities. Has a lot of pro bono work in the community. And guess what? Do you think they're thrown together? Do you think maybe one of them learns a little bit from the other? And uh, they see if they can make each other better. Yeah, be, they're, they're, they don't like each other very much, but they're stuck together. And uh, I wonder if they're going to rub off on each other. This is a horrible pilot. Uh, I did not laugh once. It, and the most, the thing that was most shocking to me about this pilot was that I literally felt like I had stepped into a time machine to the to the 90s, and this was a bad pilot, a bad comedy series from then. Uh, the, the lighting is bad, the sets are bad, the costuming. It, it, you know, when you see, there's a late scene in the episode where, um, and, and they sent me two, and I was going to watch two, but after the first one was this terrible, I couldn't bring myself to watch the second one. There's a scene where there's a group of like five people sitting around and they're like three different clashing blues in the costuming and the set designs. Like who chose with that blue chair, which is horrible. Uh, the, the colors just, it's a very distinct color to put somebody who's wearing blue sitting in it in a blue that clashes next to a person wearing a blue shirt that clashes and come on. I mean, obviously lots of comedy pilots aren't funny, or struggle, or take a while to find their feet. That is not a surprise. This is just completely out of touch, and it's like it's, it literally felt like I was walking back in time. But not only that, the fact that all these little production details—nobody cares about how this show looks—and that is uh, that is interesting to me. So I don't know how this got made, but I presume there was a bet lost somewhere, and somebody owes somebody a lot of money because it is bad. It's not offensive. That, it's just bad. That sounds like it was a uh, homage to Martin Lawrence's Blue Streak, maybe, or it was. Hey, just really I bad. enjoy Blue Streak. I've seen that movie a couple times. Where is the Martin Lawrence of Blue Streak and Nothing to Lose and Bad Boys? Well, I mean, who, where's Kelsey Grammer? I mean, this is how do you go from Boss to this? Which I didn't like Boss, but hey, at least there's a character there. There's something interesting to do. Pretty much everybody agreed that Kelsey Grammer gave a good performance, but this is just, this is just horrible. It's not. I mean, there's nothing they could do with this material, but I mean, I just, I, just, I'm at a loss for words. So we're gonna move on. Are are you gonna check out the Partners pilot, or are you gonna let that go by you? Well. Now I have to watch it just to see how bad it is. Oh, God. Yeah, it's... Okay, let, I look forward to your thoughts, but it is... I would <laughs> I, just don't do it. Just people out there. If you're like, oh, I like those two actors. They're both really talented, and I like some of the extended cast as well because I've seen them in many things and really appreciated them. Don't do it. Just run away, and, and I don't know what's going on at, at FX such that this got made, but damn. 
Anyways, Wilfred, responsibility. Go for it. Uh, it was. I had no idea that uh, the mom character was being recast. So when Mimi Rogers showed up, that was alarming. But uh, like one of the earlier episodes this season, I thought um, dealing with Kristen's issues. I mean, that's kind of why the mom is there to bring out the fact that Kristen is unhappy and wants everybody else to be unhappy. So I think that that aspect of it is still working when they want to hit those beats. Um, but overall, not a particularly eventful episode. Uh, it will be fun and interesting to see three-legged Wilfred next week. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, it's kind of just an, an average episode for this season, I think. It's really odd to me to see all of this recasting because, of course, they recast uh, Dwight Yoakam um, with with uh, one of the Baldwins last week as well. So it was very, very odd to see that. And then Mary Steenburgen being replaced with Mimi Rogers, I was not happy about that either. It was very unsettling, and I don't know why they did it. Maybe because Mary Steenburgen is busy over at Justified, but then I wouldn't have brought back the mother in such a key way if you couldn't get the actress uh, I didn't I think you know they're, you're right they're using the mother to bring out issues with the sister but how how terrible of a person do you need to be that you're going to inflict all of this on, on your mother and be so aware of it you know like if she wasn't aware that this is why she was doing what she was doing then I, then I, that makes more sense and fits more with the character we've come to know over the course of the series. But the fact that it takes like two seconds of prodding for her to come out with, cause I'm unhappy and I want everybody else to suffer. I mean, this is not a great look for that character. And I, I don't need all my characters to be likable at all. I just like them to be consistent. And this did not feel as consistent with the character we've gotten to know over the series. I, I just, I, I'm still really struggling with Wilfred and I kind of wish it had gone off the air a year and a half ago, if not two. So I'm sorry. I know you really love Wilfred. Um, this has not been one of the stronger seasons. So there's nothing that you are saying is off base in any way. Um, so, but yeah, I, I like it more than some of the early episodes of the season. Um, but again, I'm just, I think I'm just done with Wilfred. I'm just watching it because I'm making you watch so many other shows and that is fine. Um, but I don't really have anything to add for Wilfred this week. So I'm going to move us on to Adventure Time because this was amazing and I hope you liked it because I loved it. Oh no! <laughs> How did you not love Prin Sorry, for our listeners out there, there's just like this really unfortunate expression on Sean's face. This was LS LSP and Marceline the Vampire Queen teaming up, and it was amazing. Yeah, the the team up was a lot of fun. Uh, Lumpy Space Princess is wonderful, but I don't know. It was such like a <sighs> distraction episode. I didn't really get any substance to it at all, and so I mean we've had a couple of really good Adventure Times in the past few weeks. And this one kind of just felt like it was turning the wheel, maybe. Ah, I loved this. This is one of my favorite episodes of Adventure Time. When the they, they accidentally think they've killed the syrup man, and they're <laughs> horrified, and then he just kind of groans and slightly moves, and they just, they go, yay, he's alive! 
and don't help him. Just float away. Oh my god, I thought it was hilarious. I, a lumpy space princess keying the wall of the pancake, the pancake wall of uh, Breakfast Princess's castle uh, was delightful. I don't know. I, lumpy space princess is my favorite character on Adventure Time, and I also enjoy Marceline. And so, getting a, an episode just with her uh, and just with those two, and really uh, exploring some of her insecurities, and um, and and as well for a show for children, exploring acting out and making making mistakes or doing things that you know aren't good and does that make you a bad person or how do you process these emotions i think that's a good thing for kids to see and also i was laughing the whole time and having fun so this sounds like this was very much a, a me episode and i'm 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 sorry you didn't like it but the wonderful thing uh, about adventure yeah. time is it'll be something completely different next week i guess it wasn't that i didn't like it um i hadn't been thinking about what you you said about uh, insecurities and, and acting out in that way. Uh, I guess that just wasn't on the conscious level for me. So um, maybe I'll rewatch it. And these are only 11-minute episodes anyway, so it's not a big deal. But yeah, it, it, it felt like it was on... It was aiming for something lower than some of the, the more recent ones have been, which is fine, and it was fun, but uh, not in a way that like really impressed me. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Let's move on to Married the Getaway. What'd you think? Uh, this, between Married and You're the Worst, I think that they're doing, FX is doing a really good job of um, portraying many different facets of being in a relationship. And obviously with Married, um, that mostly has to do with long-term committed ones. And to have uh, our couple be juxtaposed with the younger one that they meet, I think worked really well. It was fun and also the whole uh other plot with the neighbor's wife and the whole sexting thing was if not as uh interesting perhaps more hilarious i would say so this one works probably better than all of the married married episodes for me thus far i think that's interesting. This is not sounding familiar. Uh, I, I've seen. I thought I had seen the first four, but maybe there was a change in production order from the time the the DVDs were sent out to the screeners. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off and I'll I'll rewatch this one and give some thoughts on it next week because I I was, was thinking we were gonna get a um, more frat inspired episode, but that might be next week's episode. Um, so I'm gonna hold off on any thoughts on Married and instead move us to You're the Worst, Keys Open Doors. And I really like this one. I thought it was very funny. The her client, and this I think did a great job of like portraying Gretchen as really good at what she does. But everything about her client is just hilariously offensive in the best of ways. And that's good that you're able to have a minor role, I think, that works that well. So that whole part of it, I thought, was fun and ended in a in a very good way for you're the worst. You know, it's it's defined its kind of comedy and it's working, I think. Yeah, and it, I feel like I understand the characters. I feel like I've get, I've gotten to know them. I enjoy spending time in this world. I think a very important part of that actually is the roommate character. I think he may be the secret weapon for making the show work. Certainly, making us like any of uh, any of the things that 
um, the the male lead is doing. But yeah, that having that figure in there, I think, really helps. And um, yeah, I mean, Jimmy should we should hate Jimmy. Gretchen, there's more elements to her that are likable, I think. Um, but Jimmy could be more challenging. But having his relationship with his roommate really helps. And so yeah, I th- yeah I I laughed out loud. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the the return of Ty. Um, which was, you know, just smarmy and uh, just the right level of horrible. But um, no, I th- I think it's doing. A- I mean, again, this is episode three. Usually, comedies take longer to find their feet, but it feels pretty confident. Yeah, and exploring um, Jimmy's, I guess, uh, reluctance and hesitance because of the fact that he doesn't want this thing to lose its magic by simply giving her a key to his place. Um, this is kind of the first nice stab at finding something redeemable in him, I think. Well, and I also like that the episode doesn't end with her getting a key. The episode ends with them saying that they need to get his key back from Sam. Uh, and it's implied that, that she's not going to have a key that, mm-hmm. you know, that they're not, that's not what they're at, you know, what they're interested in doing right now. That's not really where the two of them are at and they're not on the same page and about everything. I like that. It does. It's, it's not the whole, the guy freaks out cause the, the woman wants to have more of a connection and, uh, the, and, and he, he rebels. And, but then in the end he realizes that he was wrong and she was right and they should be more committed. I like that. It doesn't follow that traditional, uh, progression. So, uh, hopefully I won't be proved wrong in the next episode when she has a key, but, uh, but I, I appreciated that as well. And I always am looking for comedies that are going to go a slightly different way with their lead couple. So I was pleasantly surprised. Um, let's move on to gravity falls though. Episode one and two of the second season. Had you seen any of season one? I've seen a bit of it. Yeah. I've not watched the whole thing, but I'm going to go back and do that. And what did you think of, of these episodes? Scary and into the bunker. Great. Both of them in their own ways and for anybody who's not watching Gravity Falls like this is another one of those shows like Banshee or In the Flesh or Korra where the people who have seen it recognize it as very good but just not enough people are watching it so this is a hilarious and really well crafted show and does things that it really ought not to do so successfully so for instance um, Wendy and and Dribble's relationship in the second episode and how that's explored, I thought was very intelligent for this kind of show. And it also just does the actiony stuff well. So I probably would say that um, the Bunker episode was the better of the two, but also that Scarioki was a really nice um, way to ease viewers back into the series, I guess, because it was that kind of fun adventure kind of episode. And it had Nick Offerman, so that can only be a good thing. Yeah, that was fun when uh, when he showed up and the it's gotten he, he 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 does enough voice work now that I'm obviously it's such a recognizable voice anyways that he has but uh, I can always immediately tell when it's him and there's an extra level of fun that he brings to his voice performances that I always enjoy. Um, yeah, this this is a fun way to start off the season. Um, it wasn't quite to the level of the end of season one for me. Uh, particularly Scarioki, I, I thought Into the Bunker was better, and like you said, the maturity of the handling of of that uh, that crush 
with Dipper and, and Wendy, I thought was actually lovely. And, and that last scene on the log was really nice. And I always appreciate that again, that maturity from, especially from kids themed programming or, or shows that are intended to, to mostly be watched by, by kids. Um, as for, I mean, Mabel and, and Waddles, I just, I will always love any Mabel stuff. Uh, her excitement with her friends about her shirt or her, you know, electric sweater is delightful. And uh, I also would just, I appreciate them getting the whole Dipper and Mabel know that Grunkle Stan knows thing out of the way uh, was, was really a lot of fun. So I, yeah, I enjoyed these episodes. I'm glad Gravity Falls is back. And uh, hopefully there's a lot of comedies we're watching right now. Uh, hopefully there will be time for me to keep watching it. It's not as high on my list as you're the worst at this point, which is surprising to everyone. Probably certainly it's surprising to me, um, but it's above, it's definitely above Wilford for me. And it's uh, probably above married right now. How would you rank these? Like in order of interest, like Wilfred adventure time, married, you're the worst in gravity falls. You know, it's a whole different beast if you ask, like, overall or right now. Because yeah, overall, right now. They're all on your DVR. Which do you watch first? Yeah, I'm going to shock you right now and say uh, Wilfred is fourth out of those. Ooh. Yeah. Although it would easily be first if we're taking into account everything. Um, probably Married at three, and You're the Worst at two. And Gravity Falls is... I'm a big proponent of this show, so... Okay. And I, I like these episodes. Seuss... As a zombie was brilliant. <laughs> I'm already here. I'm already sitting. Yeah. Oh, Seuss is awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, hopefully next year I'll get to the Gravity Falls uh, Comic-Con panel. Because I did want to go this year, but wasn't able to make it. Um, so yeah, I'm glad it's back. And I'm glad we're talking about it on the podcast. So this week, what wins your uh, what wins the week in comedy? Um, I'll give it to Into the Bunker. Okay, and I'm going to give it to Adventure Time, Princess Day, because it was amazing, guys. <laughs> Super excited to watch it again. Um, that wraps up our week in comedy. Now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and reality. In genre and reality, I'm going to preview Outlander. We'll talk The Strain. It's not for everyone. And then we'll uh, talk about the So You Think You Can Dance top 14 to top 10 episode. We now have, uh, it's time for the All-Stars. We've got our top 10. But before we get to reality, let's kick things off with genre and Outlander. I've seen the first two episodes of this, and um, I've not read the books. I know that they're very popular, and uh, I, I don't actually know anyone who's read them, but I know a lot of people who know someone who's read them, and they all love them. So, you know, I, I'm still behind on several other books that I need to read. I, the stack keeps growing on my nightstand, but um, 
but I am I am intrigued after listening to the author speak at Comic Con. I'm intrigued about the, these books. However, the show has does a couple things that I hate, and <laughs> uh, and that's making it hard for me to enjoy the many many things it does very well. So I'm gonna get the things I hate out of the way. And then focus on the stuff that I like. Because I think a lot of people will really like this show. And the number one thing it does that I just, I hate it so much about these two episodes. The number one thing pulling me back and get, for getting me to disconnect from the show is it has so much voiceover. And it's all past tense. And it's all passive. And it immediately takes me out of the action. There's no sense of immediacy with anything that the main character is experiencing. Um, and and so I just, I don't care the way that I should. There, um, and the other main problem is that the main character is right now perfect. She's just right. And she is not, she's not a flawed character. And that is not interesting for a lead in a drama. So... To break those two rather large flaws down a little bit further, obviously this is based on a book, and the book that I believe is told in first person. I could be wrong. I'm not sure the structure of the book. Are you do, are you familiar with the Outlander books? I am not. Um, so do you know the story of Outlander? I know nothing. Ah, okay. Well, I, some of our listeners probably don't either. I should give you guys a brief synopsis. Outlander follows Claire Randall, who is a uh, nurse who is just uh the World War 2 has just wound, uh just finished um it's 1940s like 45 i think and uh, her husband and and her are reconnecting after the war they've been apart for basically 5 years um and and he's she's played by um Katrina Boff and then uh she's married to uh Tobias Menzies who people will know from many things including as being Brutus in Rome and being um one of the Tullys on Game of Thrones the one who couldn't light the bonfire uh Cat's brother um anyways the um so they're connecting, reconnecting in Scotland before he starts up uh, being his professorship at Oxford in history and uh, stuff happens. Druids, blah, blah, blah. She travels back in time to the 1700s and is stuck there and is trying to get home uh, to her life and to her husband. And uh, then yeah, there ends up being, I'm told, we meet Jamie, who is um, a Highlander from that time. There's a lot of conflict between the British or the English and the the Scots at this time. And she's kind of thrust into the middle of it because, of course, she's English and she's in Scotland. And so people think she's a spy. It's a whole thing. Um, and so uh, Sam Hagen plays Jamie Fraser and... Um, that you know there she's torn between two lives eventually and and you know two men and two identities for herself and all of that so that that's the that that's the main character that's the main gist of the book series to my knowledge uh and that's what the series will be as well so because it's it's very much her first person point of view and perspective there's the whole first and second episode are just constantly there's voiceover from her from a future version of herself talking about her experiences and what she thought and what she felt and i would much rather watch her watch the actress who is good who does a good job and with what she's given in these episodes convey what she's thinking and what she's feeling um so it just drives me nuts. And then also she she slips into seven into eighteenth century life a little too easily. 
she happens to have an interest in botany and so she can she and obviously she was a combat nurse in the war so she can be a healer because she just knows what plants have healing properties and stuff because she happens to like botany and like there's too many things like that she's too comfortable in the the garb uh of the time and um knows you know all of a sudden she um everybody at first is speaking uh uh scottish gaelic right and um and then after a while they all start speaking english and she can understand them and that that's a problem at first in the first couple of scenes when she's back in time and then all of a sudden just everybody speaks english all the time you know there's too many things like that um that and that's sloppy it's frustrating because the show looks gorgeous. It's one of the best performances I've seen from Tobias Menzies as the husband. Uh, he, he features prominently in the pilot and is barely in the second episode. The same actor also plays um, a, a ancestor of the character um, in the in the 18th century, who is a villain who's you know very not a good guy. They don't do a good enough job, I think, of of physically. You know, it's too convenient where he looks just like him. It's frustrating, um, but but it's a fantastic performance from him. I think uh, Sam Hagen is promising as Jamie. There's there's a lot of actually the cast I do really like when she goes back in time. But um, but and the scores by Bear McCreary. It sounds lovely. It's very pretty music. It looks gorgeous. The costuming and the set design and all of that is great. But I just can't get past that voiceover. Um, it's just, it's really frustrating. So I don't know if I'm going to make time for the show in a way that I would if it had a different structure. Uh, are you interested in, in Outlander at all? Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And what you've said, some of it has piqued my interest. So I don't know. If it's set in the 1700s, I feel like you should have Dr. Samuel Johnson do the voiceover. And he was a the premier uh, literary critic of his time and probably of all time. And he just hated on everything so well. So it'd be great <laughs> to have him like deconstruct your character. As <laughs> on. Well, uh, I look forward to your thoughts on Outlander. Um, other people seem to be much more positive on this than I am. And I don't know if that's an affinity for the character from the books that I just don't have, uh, or, you know, cause I just get frustrated that she is just right and correct and a she's strong and she's never scared and she you know she, she feels like a person but she feels a little there's a little bit of a mary sue in there in that character right now in the first two episodes that is frustrating uh for me but um I, we'll talk about it more next week Th that that premieres this week on stars i do also want to mention i am very very glad that there is a show this female centric and uh this interested just like the the it's interested in the men Yes, but it is very much her show. And I'm very happy that Stars is finally doing a female-led show. Have you read some of the controversial articles surrounding this pre-release? No. What okay, because is... a lot of it is centered around portrayals of femininity. And there, as there always is with these things, and because the internet is the internet, uh, there are some interesting articles, so I encourage you to seek those out. I will, because there are a couple moments there that I was not. Yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple moments that were giving me a hard time. Uh, with mm -hmm. you know, like this should be a feminist show, but she is very, you know, she has very strong thoughts about the fact that she she is not a whore and therefore she is a she is a good woman and uh, the right kind of a woman and everything that uh, were a little troubling. But uh, there's also some 
there's a uh, a few moments that I particularly enjoy of uh, female empowerment and pleasure. I'll say that I, again, I was very happy to see on a, on Stars, which has not been a network as known for for those priorities. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to our conversation. <laughs> Then I'll also quickly mention the strain. It's not for everyone. I appreciate the end of it. I'm glad that it feels like it took forever, but I'm glad it really only took four episodes for us to get David Bradley teamed up with Corey Stoll. Uh, the the break breaking of the team with with Corey Stoll and Mia Maestro's characters. I don't know that I buy it, um, but and I'm disappointed that we aren't that we're not going to get the David Bradley Mia Maestro team that I'm much more interested in. Then, but th- but this is very much a show that is, you know, Corey Stoll is the hero. It's convinced that Corey Stoll is the hero. So, you know, there's there's that. Um, so I'm not surprised really. Uh, as for what's coming next, it's you know, it's it's very predictable. It seems like it's predictable. We'll see next week whether those predictions uh, wind up being correct. But um, I'm glad that we're finally moving forward. We've got the other stuff out of the way. And hopefully the next several episodes will just be David Bradley and Corey Stoll kicking ass. So uh, we'll see whether we check in with it next week as the the TV landscape continues to get more and more cluttered. But let's move on to So You Think You Can Dance, which has its top ten. What did you think? Uh, There's so many things to talk about with So You Think You Can Dance. I know, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, uh, Okay. Let's see. First, people who had to go. Yes, uh, you can kind of tell from Jessica and Casey's routine that they were going to be saved because they killed it on that one. And kind of sad to see Carly go because she was impressing me more as the season went on. But it is what it is. And the 10 that they have, I think, are mostly very good. Um, uh, yeah, as soon as I saw... And Jessica is going to be doing Contemporary by Travis Wall. I was like, hmm, I wonder if the show wants her to do well. I just, I can't guess. The two contemporary dancers, because Casey's a contemporary dancer too, uh, being given their own uh, genre and being given one of the most popular choreographers for the judges and for the fans. Hmm, coincidence? And now she's t- she's pa- uh, paired with Twitch, the most popular of all their all-stars. So the show clearly wants Jessica to do well. That's not an accident. That doesn't happen by accident time and again. Um, So, yeah, I was a little disappointed with that. But when you watch that routine, you can't argue with it. Because if she would just fix her stupid face, the rest of her body when she's dancing is wonderful. So I'm hoping that when she's paired with some all-stars next week, um, she will actually, in the next several weeks, because there's no way she's going to go anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. Um... I just really hope that she can grow and improve and expand as an artist because her stupid face. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send her a tweet that says, Kate says to fix your stupid face. Well, the rest I'll... of her is fantastic. Those extensions, you could feel the energy coming out of her, her hands and her, you know, her fingertips and her toes. And then you look at her face and she's always doing the same, like... Look at me, I'm sexy, and I think I'm sexy, and I'm 16, and I don't really know what that means. You know, she does the same, like, three faces in all of her dances, uh, and it's frustrating. I think Casey probably enjoyed her face in that routine a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that, sorry, that I I have frustration about Jessica. Oh, no, that's fine. That's good. What um, else? What else did you notice? 
I I had gotten to really like uh, Misty Copeland, but as you had said when we were talking about the auditions, uh, Christina Applegate's awesome. So both of those as recurring judges have been really good, and I am happy about that. Um, let's see, of the other individual or the other um, pairs, Rudy and Tanisha, I thought were really good, especially Tanisha, who like probably has become my second favorite girl after Bridget. Um, super talented, I think, and, and that routine really worked. Uh, and then the last one that I really took to, despite the fact that if I never hear um, turn down for what ever again, I'll be a very happy person, but uh, Ricky and Valerie's routine I thought was fantastic, and, and her being the puppet, um, and also the those leg waves it was ridiculous. I look forward to what happens next week because uh, when they're all paired with All-Stars, uh, Valerie will no longer get the Ricky bump. And I want to see what she can do on her own with a fantastic partner, of course, but without everybody voting for her as part of the Ricky-Valerie duo, which is kind of what's been happening. Um, at least that's what I think has been happening because otherwise I don't think she'd still be in the competition uh, so I'm looking forward to what comes next for a lot of these dancers. Some of them are ready and need to be challenged. Ricky needs to be challenged. He has not been challenged yet, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I want to see something new. I want to see them make him be a character that isn't happy because they've let him just do this. He's done one emotional beat every single week. It's he, they've not challenged him emotionally. And I'm hoping that, that, that will happen in all stars. Um, I'm hoping that that's, they will actually try to push him because he won't be being held back by uh, Valerie, who is, you know, even if you like Valerie, everybody agrees that Ricky is beyond her. Um, so I'm hoping to get some new stuff from him. Uh, I'm hoping to see some new beats from some of the other dancers as well. Um, but yeah, I think when you have um, you know, Emilio and Jasmine is going to be a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of Jasmine from last year. Um, I think, I, th I think who's with Jenna again? Is that Rudy's with Jenna? Yes. I think that's going to be a good pairing as well. I just I'm very excited about the All Stars, and um, that's I think that's that's all I, that's all I have for right now. How did you feel about the the group numbers? Um, I think I would agree with Nigel that probably overall the rest of the girls are better than the rest of the guys slightly, but I prefer the guys number more in that episode. So yeah, I thought that that was great. Uh, Emilio got thrown way up by, and that was awesome. But uh, both of those I thought were solid. It just, uh, the guys one worked a little bit better for me in concept. Yeah. Uh, I like the guys better than the girls as well. I just keep thinking back to last season's top 12. Uh, Cause the last season they had a top 12 to 10 instead of 14 to 10. And it was a fantastic. There was like one or two that were iffy, but every every all the other routines were fantastic. I would say check it out if you're curious to see to see some of the all stars who are going to be showing up next week. Um, but the the top six women last year and men last year, especially the women, were much better than this. Wait, batch. so what? So what happens now? What happens now is that all the pairs are broken. And the, each of the dancers, the contestants this, this year, uh, is given an all-star, air quotes, um, to dance with in 
and and so there's they're returning dancer from the previous seasons of the show who are very very good and so uh some of them are going to be from earlier in the series run some of them are for just from the last few seasons i'm more familiar with the ones from the last few seasons but uh, all the dancers i'm familiar with of those all-stars which is most of them i'm very excited to see them dance because what usually happens is that they bring in they basically they bring in the pros and that raises the the level for the, dan- the dancers and it shows who's able to go to the next level and who is not and so they, it pulls new 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 strengths and uh, uh, new emotional and technical challenges out of each of the dancers. And what's the format in terms of elimination now? Uh, I am not sure. I think what they're has been different each season, uh, okay. a little bit different each season, depending on their budget and other things. And so I think what's happening this season is they're going down to a final two guys and girls, and then. And then any, then they'll have a final four, and then any of those four can win, because I think there's only going to be one winner this year. Last season, the last two seasons, there's been a top guy and a top girl, because um, basically I think it was the girls kept winning because they get usually get flashier stuff to do. Um, but I believe this this season there's only one winner, not two. So I'm not quite sure exactly how that's going to work, but I think they'll keep paring down one guy, one girl each week, and then we'll have a top four. And one of those four will win. Well, Bridget and Emilio all the way for me. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens with the All-Star 6. We can be very excited. Um, but for now, you have one show, and that w- so that wins for you. And um, for genre reality, I'm going to give it to So You Think You Can Dance as well. As much as I like certain elements of Outlander and The Strain, it's also You Think You Can Dance for me. Um, now let's take a break and come back with our week in drama. When I was a little girl, my dad took me to the circus. The greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears. And a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over... I said to myself, is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? This week in drama, I'm going to preview The Nick on Cinemax, and then talk a little bit about Manhattan, The Prisoner's Dilemma. Then we'll talk The Honorable Woman, which had its pilot this week on Sundance TV, Rectify, Weird as You, Masters of Sex, Dirty Jobs, and The Leftovers guest. But first, The Nick. This is the Steven Soderbergh and uh, Clive Owen uh, limited series, question mark, but it's been renewed for a second season. So this is Steven Soderbergh said he was retiring from movies and then made this. So, you know, whatever. That's fine. I don't really care because I am a big fan of Steven Soderbergh and this show looks fabulous and he's done an excellent job with it. Uh, It's about a a surgeon in a hospital called the Knickerbocker or the Nick. That's where the title comes from. It's in the early, it's like 1900, maybe 1901, the very early uh, 1900s and in New York. And uh, it's about the head surgeon. Uh, He becomes the head surgeon of the hospital or head doctor there. And he's trying to, 
you know, he's trying to fight the good fight and keep progressing the field uh, of you know medicine and surgery as as best he can while struggling with you know there's all sorts of different things that come up at you know in in the hospital so there's uh they're trying to modernize and get electricity but that requires sponsorship and money from people who are then imposing their uh you know imp imposing their will on on certain hiring practices and everything so there's a bunch of different stuff going on um and it is very much a traditional hospital kind of show, medical uh, procedural or med medical uh, serialized show, just with that period flair. And with Clive Owen is in the lead, of course, he's fantastic. He's very good. I'm not really interested in him because I don't need another tortured uh, white male lead, you know, middle-aged uh, white uh, white male lead who has inner demons, man. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of that. But if you're going to watch that, Clive Owen is a pretty great guy to, to be in that role. I'm more interested in the other elements surrounding that character. Uh, there's a doctor who gets brought in to be his assistant chief who is African-American and would be the first African-American doctor in the, the hospital. And I, I appreciate the handling of that in, in the show, both from the lead and from everybody else. There's, you know, there's some of the nurses that I think are interesting. There's just certain elements that are very promising. And again, it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautifully shot. I really like the score. I should say the score for Outlander. It's very lilty. It's very, what you expect from the Highlands, uh, a show set in Scotland. And especially when we get to the, when they travel back in time, uh, the Nick has like a minimalist electronic guitar kind of score said in the 1900s and that is awesome so i'm very happy about that i like that they're going that different way and they're keeping giving the show energy um and really showing the cutting edge element of what these doctors were doing in this time through the use of this this different kind of scoring and not going for old-timey you know uh old-timey music to, which would be period specific so uh that's an element i really enjoy um i don't really have much more to say other than again cinematography direction some of the writing is really good, um, and people should check it out. So, Cinemax, starting this week, The Nick. We'll talk about it next week. Any thoughts? Are, are you, have you been looking forward to this one? I'm really excited about this one. Um, I got to talk to a couple of people from Cinemax about this when I went to a Banshee screening, and they got me pretty hyped up for it. And I'm a big fan of Clive Owen. Uh, I think Children of Men is probably the best sci-fi film of all time. So I'm way on board now that Strike Back and Banshee have proven that Cinemax can do good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Banshee is on that list, man. It's on that list of shows that I need to watch. Uh, but um, but no, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it, and we'll have plenty to talk about with the first and, and the second episode. Um, yeah, I'm gonna leave it there. I don't want to get I don't want to get into spoilers. <laughs> There's more I would say, but it would have spoilers, so we're gonna avoid that. Instead, I'm gonna move on to Manhattan: The Prisoner's Dilemma. And say that I was impressed with the second episode. Uh, I, yeah, I, I thought it, I didn't expect it to do some of the things it does to follow the characters it does. I'm keeping it vague in case you watch it, Sean. Um, I did not expect it to follow some of the characters 
that it does in the second episode or to make some of the decisions that it does. I continue to be impressed by the cast. I continue to be interested in the story and uh, more time with Olivia Williams is always a good thing. As far as I'm concerned, we get a lot more of her in the second episode. So um, yeah, I continue to be on board with Manhattan and that was one that would have been very easy for me to let it slip through the cracks, but I don't think I'm going to, at least for right now. I'm going to, I'll let the bridge go before I let Manhattan go. And that <laughs> is very surprising to me. Let's move on though to the honorable woman, which is on Sundance. And I have, I have the entirety of this. I have, I have the entire eight episodes as screeners and I haven't been able to watch them. And it's killing me because this is a gorgeous pilot. It is so pretty. Production values all around are ridiculous. So yeah, the how it looks, how it sounds, how it's shot, absolutely stunning. Really, really impressive. Um, and that's even by Sundance TV's standards, which in that or in those categories, those expectations are already ridiculously high. Um, this is going to be a big one for me, I think, because coming into this, uh, not a fan of Maggie Gyllenhaal at all. Um, had seen her in a bunch of stuff, a bunch of films, and like, it's just this natural aloofness that I find really distracting and makes it seem like she's acting when she's not like immersed in the role. Uh, at least that's my perception of it. And this, at least in this first episode, manages to, side, manages to sidestep that. So if this is the, the show, it's the breakthrough for me where like I can finally just sink into how good of an actress she is. That's, that's a big thing for me, I think. And, she is great in this. I know, um, you know, we often talk about British actors doing American accents and how so many of them do it so well, and the opposite is not true. She's doing a good accent here. Everything about her performance, I think, is very, very solid. Yeah, she's fantastic in this, and uh, when because because I wouldn't can I wouldn't compare this to um, to Top of the Lake because Top of the Lake is such a distinct show like tonally and it's it's character study i mean it's it's feels very much its own thing this feels more i would compare this to the red road and this is way more interesting already in one episode than red the red road was despite my just you know loving julianne nicholson and uh some of jason momoa's performance in the course of that series this is already just a much more interesting and nuanced and uh more again you said the production values it's gorgeous and the score oh my god all of, as soon as they played the Bach Chacon of course they cut out all the it's like a 20 minute long piece so they cut out most of it but that's one of my favorite pieces uh ever composed and uh, it's certainly one of my favorite to play and so you know like their use of classical violin in this in, in the scoring is such a wonderful choice and fits so well with the characters and the world and um I love that as well. I, I'm very much looking forward to the rest of, of this and watching the rest of, of the season as soon as I am able, as soon as I have the free time, because I, want, I wanted to be able to have seen the whole thing and just kind of hopefully gush at you guys or maybe temper some expectations depending on how the rest of the season goes. But um, I thought they built to the end of the episode incredibly well. We have Tobias Menzies in this as well. I'm hoping he's okay. Uh, he got shot twice, so probably not. But um, I thought he was really good in a really small role. I think all the performances are, are very good. And it's just there's a show actually set in Israel and Palestine and talking about some of this stuff. And 
in a way that doesn't feel as exploitative. Um, just it's a very it's very stark and bold opening with the dinnerware and the bread and all of that. For those who haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it, but um, this is confident, confident TV, uh, and I'm more people should be talking about it. I, I haven't heard anybody talking about it. And I'm not sure why, because I think they should be. It comes out swinging so powerfully in a way that certainly, and also because there are some other superficial comparisons that reminded me of when Homeland premiered, um, and both kind of have their own take on the thriller genre. This one's a little bit more subdued, but certainly has those elements to it. And so, so to see how it, it messes around with that, I think is going to be a lot of fun. I'm a little less interested in kind of the the mystery backstory as of right now, obviously because it's only used as a tease. Um, so if that's done well, of course, then that's fine. But I'm much more immersed in the present day of all of it. Yeah, but again, that last that those last moments with the Maggie Gyllenhaal char- character, the just the rich the rich black of those of the shadows. And the sound, it's so still. I mean, it's gorgeous, gorgeous TV making. Uh, I want to say filmmaking, but it's it's television, guys. It's TV making now. Uh, let's move on to Rectify, Weird as You. And again, you talk about Sundance TV. I'm very glad to have the Honorable Woman joining the, you know, have, being another example of it. But you can just look at Rectify and that opening of this episode before the pre-credit sequence. Um, just so unique. And hugely memorable, and I love that song choice. You guys heard it before uh, the this segment of the podcast. What a surprising, but again, fantastic episode of Rectify. Yeah, and the the hero of the episode, I guess. I want to give it to Teddy Jr., who steps up and just lies and says, "Look, I'm, I made all that shit up." because I don't want this to tear apart my family, because I know that it will. So uh, he's such an easy character to hate, and, and in a very good way that they're obviously going for, and yet he still has many admirable characteristics, I think, and, and that moment especially did a wonderful job of showing us who he really is. Yeah, well, and that he's both. He's still also a jackass, but he's also this, and that's that has been an element to the character throughout the the series, um, in the first season as well. And um, I again, this is a show not interested in easy answers, and it doesn't give us any. It certainly doesn't give us any with the bit of uh, the scenes we get with, um, with Daniel and uh, his, you know, the the other guy who was there, who we know. I think he killed George, right? That was George, we think. Yeah, well, didn't George shoot himself? George shot himself, and he then then he hid the body. Yeah, I think Trey, yeah, threw it in the river and then disposed of the evidence. Yeah, so it, you know, it's there's a lot going on, but these last few episodes have not been trying to get us to think happy thoughts about Daniel. Uh, no, not in any way. That whole everything about that was uncomfortable. The the drug induced days and them just hanging out and the house and talking and Trey egging Daniel on and on. And the fact that we don't know definitive answers to some of these things. Yeah. It's just very unsettling in an effective way. 
and again, this is a show that is willing to do that. Can you think of another show that halfway through its second season would be so happy to explore maybe the main character you've been rooting for these two seasons is a horrible rapist murderer? Um, Hannibal did some interesting things with Will, but that was all an elaborate ploy. Yeah, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind, at least. Yeah, it, it's it's just, again, this is a show interested in characters and nuance, and I'm happy to be spending the time with it as much me, as, as they'll give us. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. That scene with uh, Amantha when she comes to the tire shop and she's high, there was some subconscious flirtation there, no, with Teddy Jr.? No, I didn't see that. Um, maybe, I don't know, but, uh, um, I just got, I got really worried really quickly for a second there. Cause that's not something that I want to see happen. Yeah. I don't think the show is going to go that way. I think there could be, there's, it would be easy for there to be backstory we don't know about. Cause of course, uh, Teddy Jr. Uh, is from they're They're not actually related and they would have met as they, when they were, you know, teenagers when, you know, that, that. So who knows, but, um, and obviously they have a strained relationship to say the very best, you know, at the very least. So there easily could be backstory there. We don't know, but the, um, I was just more keying into, uh, Amantha and her being, you know, and, and Teddy Jr. Having to deal with them showing up high and looking for munchies and just taking his food. Um, so I, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to rewatch. Yeah. I mean, that's. Again, not something I'm looking forward to, but uh, th- I, I hope. I mean, Ray McKinnon knows how to do these characters well, so I, I don't imagine that that's going to happen. So. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I if we get some some thing with that in flashback, then that's fine. I don't. I would be. I don't think we're going to get anything with that in the present day. But now I'm now I'm going to be pondering <laughs> that. So thank you. Uh, you've all, you know, for those who don't remember, Sean has already ruined a lot, a shocking amount of television for me because now I notice whenever characters speak in half sentences, which happens everywhere on television and is super annoying because nobody's very few people speak that way in real life. Um, so now I have another one to add. So it's thank a, you. It's a writing thing, is what it is, and I know writers this love because, it. Yeah, because as because I don't speak like that obviously but when i text often like i notice that i do that and so these this is all the screenwriter's fault for writing not in a natural way yeah yep but uh let's move on there's still several episodes to talk about here and next up is masters of sex which doesn't do that half speak thing very much uh, you know on the scale of of different shows i appreciate that but this episode is dirty jobs and uh, it was just after last week's episode, this was obviously, it was not as good as last week's Last week's episode was amazing. Um, but this was just kind of hard to watch because everybody's having such a shitty day. Yeah. And in all honesty, maybe the Bill stuff was the least interesting of all the things going on. And I would qualify that by saying that I'm still really engaged with that. It's just that, man, so everything going on with Betty and her conversation with her husband and 
what we find out about how he knew her as a prostitute beforehand, and then obviously the Lillian DePaul stuff, and also how Austin was being played off of Bill. I mean, there was a lot of really, really good subplots in this episode. That scene with Betty and, and her husband, I loved that so much. And again, way to take a character that we think we know and make him so much more interesting. And uh, oh, I, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm very glad that Greg Grunberg is on the show. I always enjoy him popping up. Uh, he's a very uh, likable presence for me on TV shows. I'm always happy when he's added to the cast. But to to make that, again, a more realized and, and you know, interesting character again is a very smart move for them and that that also tells me we're going to be spending more time with them which is something especially with the scullies being gone i am so glad that that is the case and um you know do you think is this do you think they'll get like a surrogate or something because that's the thing you could do right i would say so i mean that seems like the most likely of situations uh they're obviously in love with each other and she's just so well She's in like with him. She likes him a lot. She's yeah, a lesbian. Well, <laughs> so yeah. that makes things challenging, but... But I mean, in, in the sense that uh, this is a relationship, I think, that works right now, and that Masters of Sex is in all of its interest with different kinds of sexuality and sexual politics. I think it's found one of the more interesting ones there. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't imagine we're going to be dropping that thread at all. How horrible is Libby? I know, right? <laughs> oh, God. She's just, she's history's worst monster. You kidding me? Washing her hair? And then just giving her money. Uh, like, <laughs> so, you know, just subjugating her will and and making all these demands of her and not, she she I think she knows how wrong she is. And that's why she gives, feels guilty and is trying to reassure herself through that scene. But she is horrible there. Caitlin Fitzgerald is really good in this role and mm -hmm. pulls it off incredibly well. And yet, and also, we get a scene later in the episode where, you know, Bill wakes up and she's heard about what happened and he just loses it. And the two of them acting in that scene together was fantastic. Really, really good. And obviously, Bill is reacting to things that she doesn't know about yet. Um, but it worked fabulously. And what, what I heard somebody um, talking about or tweeting about on Twitter earlier this week, which I really appreciate, is that Libby's uh, tr treatment of, of Coral and that, that relationship underlines just how rare it is to have a discussion of, of uh, race and racism in per these period dramas because it usually like Mad Men pay no attention to anything that might be you know any difficult ra uh, racial elements that might be coming into play in social interactions and uh, so to to see to see it come up here with Libby I think is really uh, it's been really a very smart move and a, a much appreciated move for me in this season and then where the episode ends and what's coming next I I felt like I should have seen that coming with the way that they've been adding Coral in and these different discussions of, uh, you know, how Libby has been interacting with her and all of that. Um, but I didn't. And I was, I'm very much looking forward to what's going to come next. Yes. As am I. And then just quickly, the, the Virginia and Lillian stuff was great in terms of, um, really 
straining that relationship to the point where Lillian recognizes that Virginia isn't being as honest with her as she was with Virginia. And that pairing is just so good. Fantastic. Uh, just such great performance, uh, such a great performance from uh, Julian Nicholson. And I always love her. And every time the character gets a word wrong, it just makes me sad, uh, super sad about you know, how much time we're, are we going to have left with that character on the show and um, and with that performance. So I thought that was very nice. I liked having Renee Aubergenois show up as uh, as the, the doctor who takes over the the study or the, the center and the research. But um, but no, I'm going to I'm going to miss that character when she's gone. And gosh, yeah, Ginny doesn't realize what she's giving up again, the relationship she's sacrificing to maintain uh, what she has currently with, with Bill. And that's hard to watch. It is. Um, any other thoughts on Masters of Sex, or shall we move on to The Leftovers? Let's go to Leftovers, because this was an episode. Oh, man, this was this was an episode that aired. Uh, I also watched episode five. I, just briefly, the episode from last week, I wanted to say I loved the use of sound in it. I wasn't big on the ending. I, I didn't really like uh, what's going on there. That just doesn't makes sense to me and it just yeah i think it's stupid but um we'll see what happens with that if anything else comes of that we'll discuss it then um but let's move on to this episode guest because it was fantastic um it i, th I think for me it's it's gonna be a hard weekend drama because there's some really good television and this is definitely the best episode of the leftovers so far yeah, and it featured Slayer's Angel of Death in a very fantastic scene in which Nora wants somebody to shoot her. So that was great. Uh, Tom Noonan's presence in this episode, I think, was the thing that made me really think about what The Leftovers is doing. Um, partly because he played Francis Dollarhide in, in Michael Mann's Manhunter. And also because he was in Synecdoche, New York, both of which, obviously, the Hannibal series and, and Synecdoche deal with death and mortality very extensively. And I realized that the reason for me why this is the best episode left over so far is because Nora, more than any other character, is confronting mortality, whereas maybe her brother has other things on his mind and uh, Justin Thoreau's characters, obviously he hasn't lost any of his family to, to death or to being departed. Um, so I think Nora is probably the most interesting character for those reasons. I've been looking forward to spending more time with Nora for weeks now. And I'm very glad that we got it here. I'm glad that we got it in the only other character specific episode we've had besides obviously Christopher Eccleston's third episode. That that early scene we get with uh, the actress is Carrie Coon, I should mention, because she was fantastic throughout this. So great to see her get a spotlight. Uh, but uh, the that scene we get with her and Justin Thoreau at the beginning of the episode, I thought was was fantastic and so much fun. I look forward to their eventual dinner because that is something uh, something I need to I need to uh, spend more time with. I, you know, a nice a nice ship to get invested in. For this show would be a good thing. It would be something, you know, to help boost the super depression. Uh, I was surprised, but but pleased to see Magic Wayne show back up. I was watching this episode with uh, one of my cousins who hasn't seen any of the show. 
And so when we get to the scene and Wayne's there, he's like, I was just like, oh, oh, that's Wayne. He gives magic hugs. (laughs) (laughs) And he thought I was kidding. And I was like, no, that's, it's complicated. But basically he gives magic hugs and takes away people's sadness. Uh, And, and having, having that moment of catharsis for the character. And I thought it was such a great choice because just like for it is for the character, the grief on the show is overwhelming. And there have been plenty of people who just say it's too depressing, it's too nihilistic, it's too dark, and uh, and everything goes hor- is is terrible for everyone on this show. It's just super depressing to watch. And for me, that's not the case. But I absolutely see what people are saying. So to have at least one character's load be lightened and a character with so much suffering and so much pain that she's clinging on to as Nora, I thought was a really uh, a very intelligent move to just take the character who's in the most pain and and lighten her burden and let everybody who's watching go through that with her. I thought, I thought it worked very well. And um, I don't know if I... I think I'm good just with what we saw. I don't think I, I, I think that works as an explanation. We don't need any I don't feel like he's actually necessarily magic. Whereas if they hadn't had her open up and talk a little bit and confront her her decision, like her way the way that she's holding on to her grief, I thought it was really really effective as opposed to if she hadn't talked and just gotten a hug and then all of a sudden felt better like happened previously. I think that would have been a problem. But I don't know. Do you need more of an explanation of Magic Wayne? No, he's maybe this might be a diminutive way of looking at it, but it, it's probably useful to see him as kind of uh, a conduit for acceptance because you, you can kind of look at all these characters within the context of the five stages of grief and to have him be able to move somebody from one stage to another, I think is interesting just on the figurative level. So, I I don't really need anything more there because you're right. It was more about Nora um, verbalizing those things herself, and that's kind of the first step in that process. Well, and I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I think that's an excellent point because in order to move to a po- point of acceptance, like you're saying, Nora needs to, and the other characters who theoretically benefit from Wayne's magic hugs need to acknowledge that they want to, that they want to feel better, that they don't, you know, otherwise they wouldn't go to him to try to feel better. And, uh, and so I think that is, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's an excellent way to, to frame it. So thank you. Can we just say, I mean, you said that Carrie Coon was fantastic in this. She has like no acting credits and this is a powerhouse performance, I think. So after the leftovers, give her more roles. <laughs> All of the roles, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and she's just, she's so still and she does so much with, uh, oh, she has, she does have a, a Tony nomination. So she must be a theater person uh, who's mostly done, I would have guessed, mostly done theater. But, um, but no, she, she's so, uh, she's so still in, in the frame. So for so much of it, she's just, she's doing so little which can be hard. It can be challenging, 
for theater performers sometimes when they, when they make the transition, especially to television, which is so immediate. Um, but, but she does, you know, she's, she's wonderfully dead de when she needs to be deadened, you know, she's very effective. I mean, that slight little look or a smile, almost a smile, kind of a smile, but also so much like that last expression we get from her micro expression is so such an interesting answer you know, such an interesting moment i mean what do you what does that mean to you i don't know like the episode was so great in terms of its structure leading up to that and so the the second time that we go through some scenes such as her buying groceries and then doing the interview with question 121 um, there's like a natural change in her now as well. So that smile is some kind of indication of that where I don't want to say it's like an absence of something now. It's more like uh, a removal of something cancerous, I guess. So it's this yeah. is a, a much better and fuller version of her, I guess. Yeah, this notion of that she's so she was so filled with grief and suffering and this desperate need to believe that they were somewhere better, that everyone who sees her feels it. And it is, it is making all of them need to reassure her even without, you know, that, that, that the departed are somewhere, but that's, that's better because she need, her need for that is so desperate that it's you know that they're picking up on it without without her saying anything you know i think is uh i think that's really interesting and that flicker of a smile meaning that she no longer is broken in the same way but then also that means you know the the woman she's interviewing just starts sobbing because she doesn't believe that they're somewhere better um so like the counter uh, balancing those two in that way with that 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 separation of the two uh, of of the Nora character and the person she's interviewing, I think is really interesting and it's again I mean I really appreciated that that moment I thought it was a really nice little uh, little beat. I will temper my praise of this episode ever so slightly by saying that the score in the leftovers while beautiful just to listen to I think how it functions is kind of overbearing sometimes so like what you were talking about with the Nick how that's more minimalist I would appreciate a more minimalist take to this because it feels like it's it's guiding me too much to its emotional beats and I don't need that that's why yeah I I agree um, I should specify though when I'm when I say minimalist I mean minimalism as in the style of uh, the movement in music oh. I'm but done. no, no, it's just, but it's just a terminology that I'm sure most of our listeners also aren't aware of. Not most of our listeners probably not being classically trained musicians. Um, so minimalism and what I was referencing with the Nick is where it's very repetitive uh, and fe very fe featuring the same motifs repeating uh, consistently uh, to, to lull you into a very uh, a sense where you're not as actively listening for because it doesn't change as much but it but then when things do change it's uh you don't necessarily notice right away and so it all of a sudden you're somewhere completely new and you haven't you're not really sure how you got there kind of a thing uh there tend to be very long long pieces long form pieces that are not 
would not fit with television. But like think if you think of Philip Glass and his scoring um, in films, that tends to be minimalist as well. It's very simple, uh, which would fit with what you were saying here as well. Uh, yes, the 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 score is not subtle on the leftovers, and um, I don't know that that the moments in this show need to be supported with as prominent of a score. You know, I, I'm, I'm buying these performances so much, but I think it's an intentional choice. Like you said, cause they want it to be overbearing. They want it to be somewhat oppressive and that's making some people not want to watch, but I think that's what they're going for, whether or not, obviously it's not working for you and it's starting to wear a little bit on me as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the next couple episodes. I'm very encouraged by the fact that the show like with an episode like this, it's I think this is its best episode. I think the Eccleston episode is another of its best episode. These these character centric episodes are way more interesting for me than the other ones. Um but we'll see how many if it continues to be like a two episodes are reg, like regular and then one character centric and that's a pattern. If that's the pattern that moves forward, I'm good with that. But um, do you have any thoughts on the the fake Nora's talk of a conspir a governmental conspiracy, and, and which ties in directly with the end of last week's episode? Do you think that's something the show is going to explore? I really hope not, because it's not an avenue I think that suits um, the genre of this. Um, yeah. So I. It doesn't seem like it to me, despite the fact that it was at the end of the last episode. But, uh, yeah, I hope I'm not proven wrong there. Yeah, I would uh, I would not be uh, I would not be surprised just because it came if it, if little hints of something keep showing up in the cracks. But um, I, I like you. I hope they don't start to really explore that. Um, I'm. I'm happy just spending time with some of these characters and really focusing in on them and getting performances like we get from Carrie Coon here because she really is tremendous in this episode. Uh, so what wins your week in drama? Come on. I, I have no idea. Uh, between Rectify, an amazing honorable woman pilot, uh, this best leftovers episode, and what I thought was a really, really good episode of Masters of Sex, I don't know. Uh, you go first, and then I'll make my decision uh, based off of that, maybe. Although that's kind of cheating. <laughs> that's fine. Cheating is allowed on the televerse. I came into this segment expecting to give it to the leftovers, but I think I'm actually going to go with the Honorable Woman pilot after talking about it. Okay. Because, again, we watched... It's a pilot, and we watched so many of them, and I hadn't thought about it in that context because it is sort of like a mini... So you're like an eight-episode kind of event thing, but you're right. It is still a pilot, and they do such a wonderful job with that and you know like we say pilots are hard so um this is a fantastic pilot and again more people should check it out the honorable woman sundance on i want to say fridays thursdays fridays thursdays so check it out this week let us know what you think listeners okay i've given you some time to ponder what are you going with okay uh if i'm being objective i might actually say that masters of sex is going to go two in a row, but I'm going to not be objective. I'm going to go with my gut, my emotion. That's what and you say, do. Yeah, I'll go with uh, the leftovers because I don't know if I'll be able to give it another one. So this is its win and it deserves it. 
Nice. That wraps up our week in drama and our week in television. A few show notes. You can find a post-up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. Let us know what your pick is on this ridiculous week in drama. You can also uh, find us on iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and we would appreciate any feedback you guys can give us there. It uh, does help other people find the show. You can also find us on Facebook where you can like the page to follow the goings on at Sound of Sight TV and the Televerse. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. And uh, we're both on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse, and you are? At Sean Coletti. And you can also find more of my writing at the AV Club. And Sean, where we can, where else can we find more of your writing besides, of course, we're both at Sound on Sight? At tvovermind.com. And uh, Sean, what is our question of the week? Uh, so I mentioned that this was kind of the role for me, for Maggie Gyllenhaal. So what what roles have changed your opinions about actors or actresses? Hmm. That's a good question. Nothing's coming to mind for me. I, I know that I have had that moment of breakthrough where all of a sudden you understand, especially uh, an actor or an actress who has been um, – much more acclaimed or maybe preferred by certain of your friends. And then all of a sudden you see the right role and it all clicks for you. Uh, but nothing's coming to mind right now. So I'm just going to kind of pass on this one and see if I have a better answer at the, on, for next week on the podcast. I imagine some people will pick some more recent Matthew McConaughey things. That wouldn't be surprised if, if people come up with true detective for him, but, uh, or, or even um, uh, Dallas buyers club. But uh Yeah. Let us know, especially if you have any TV ones that really, you know, made you made you see uh, an actor in, in in a new way. But now we're going to take a break and come back with uh, some of my Comic Con interviews with with composers uh, Steve Jablonski and Dan Licht, and a little bit of Brian Reitzel in there as well. So thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. used to be superstitious Now that's all over I don't need no rabbit's foot I don't need no four-leaf clover I took down that horseshoe and I threw it into the trash My magic penny I spent it like any old cash That was Lucky, which was composed by Dan Licht and is one of the tracks off of the Season 8 soundtrack for Dexter. We'll be talking with Dan a little bit later, but uh, first I wanted to introduce these these uh, roundtables a little bit. So at Comic-Con this year, I was able to sit in on some roundtables, and so uh, for these composer interviews, it is myself, and also at my table was Tina Charles from tvgoodness.com, and of course, friend of the show, Jason Griffin, the tv holic and this week, I'll be sharing the 
the interviews that the three of us had with Steve Jablonski, who was the composer for Desperate Housewives. That's one of his main TV credits, but also he's scored uh, all the Transformers movies and several other Michael Bay movies and um, Ender's Game and uh, Battleship and a number of other films as well. So we'll talk with him first. And then after that, uh, we'll be speaking with Daniel Licht, who is the composer for Dexter and The Red Road, as well as many other shows. And uh, composer Christopher Young dropped by uh, very briefly during that interview. And uh, Brian Reitzel, the composer for Hannibal, joins in on the conversation a little bit at the end. Um, but that that is uh, what you will hear now. And again, uh, there's a lot of background noise because there are many tables happening all at once. And... Uh, uh, please, so please excuse the the other noise, but I hope you'll enjoy these interviews. I know I had a lot of fun talking with these composers, so uh, I hope you enjoy. And so first up again, uh, Steve Jablonski, and then after that, uh, Daniel Licht. I know you're, you seem to primarily uh, score film and, and video games, but uh, I have to say I still remember that opening scoring to Desperate, that Desperate Housewives pilot. All those years, I haven't seen it since maybe a year after it aired, but I still remember the sound of it. It's really evocative. Thanks very much. Um, and I wanted to, I was curious if, um, because you've done so much genre, uh, and obviously Desperate Housewives was a heightened show, how those kind of, even though one was comedic and, you know, Battleship or Ender's Game or, you know, less so, more action, or how those feed into each other for you as a composer or if you keep them separate. Well, it's funny, that show went on for so long, mm-hmm. eight years, that yeah. I did a lot of films during that time, mm-hmm. and it was kind of nice to, because most of the films I did during that time were way different, obviously, from so it was nice, usually I would work on the film during the day, and then at night I would switch gears just go right into Desperate Housewives mode. Mm-hmm. And it was a nice, relaxing relief from the noise of what I had done all day. And I really did keep them separate. Because yeah. they were obviously so different. But it was I looked at it as kind of a therapeutic for me to go, you know, I'm just, my head's hurting from the loud action scene. I'm going to go do some Desperate Housewives for a few hours. So that, it was a lot of work because I had yeah. to squeeze all that into one day deadlines were that's why I haven't really done much TV <laughs> I was pleasured to do that you know, that was such a unique show what, what kind of direction did Mark Cherry give you for like um, specific characters or what? Well, the way that started they had they went through several composers and they weren't sure what they wanted and a friend of mine was a producer not Mark Cherry but Michael Edelstein is his name mm-hmm. and he sent me the pilot and he said look we're having some issues we have this show and I was doing a movie and I said oh, I, I just don't have time and I looked at the pilot and I said well, alright <laughs> I have some time so I wrote a couple pieces of music sent them over never heard anything and then a few weeks later somebody called me and they said oh, it was Michael he called me and said alright I have some good news and some bad news what do you want to do? Bad news. All right, the bad news is you got the show. The good, news. good news is you got the show. So, um, so it was really just the sound of the show came from them sending the pilot out of the blue, not saying anything. I had never met Mark Cherry at that point. I just started writing music. I was so busy on this film that I was doing. I just said, all right, I'm going to write something. It was 10 o'clock at night. I remember I'm going to write a piece of music until I can't write anymore. That'll be my demo for this if I get it great, whatever. So, and it took a few weeks. 
but it was the story I heard is that Mark was just he had decided to go with someone else. And one of the ed film editors cut in that piece that I wrote to one scene and he's like, Wait, what is this? I don't and Michael the Elstein, like, that's the guy that you know, he wrote it and we played this and he's like, Oh, yeah, all right, well, yeah, let's get him. It was weird, I don't know. It was kind of a weird thing. There were so many producers and it was a big show and they wanted to get the music right. But from then on, to answer, I, to answer your question, I would sit with the producers each week and just talk about you know, the beats they wanted to hit. There was so much specific scoring to be done that I couldn't just kind of lay there. There was so much comedic timing that went into everything. So it was kind of a time-consuming job, but for sure, but rewarding. So many people watching. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the time commitment for television hugely yeah. different than for film but just in the style of, of composition often comedies there's a lot more space a lot more yeah. you know uh, and I was wondering if maybe that's something you miss sometimes when you're doing you know yeah. Battleship <laughs> it is I won't lie you know the, a film like Battleship or Transformers whatever it's kind of going at 11 for the whole time and you really look for moments where you can bring it back. Even in action scenes, I'll have meetings with the directors and say, look, we've been beating the audience with this raging music for ten minutes. Can we just maybe go to quiet or go to, even though the action's still going, let's bring it down. And they're all very open to that. Especially once we get to the end of the process and we watch it all the way through. And go, oh man, this is, just, this is too much for too long. And they'll even change the picture at that point or just but yeah, I doing and actually right now I'm kind of looking for a smaller film. I was just talking to my agents about this. So these scripts that I'm getting are just kind of big movies, which I love doing. But a really small film there, where there's no car chase or explosions. <laughs> but look, I'm happy doing these big ones because it is fun. I mean, it's a blast. Lots of toys. Yes. <laughs> is there a is there a, a, a genre of movie? that you would like to do that you haven't done? Um, I guess the genres. You could, what I was talking with my agent about was simple, story-driven, like even the kind of indie movies that you see now. Because the way they put it to me, they said, we've reached a point in films where there's either huge sequels, big action, Marvel movies, whatever, or there's tiny little independent movies. There used to be a middle ground. But it doesn't really exist anymore. And so these, these middle, these small films have lower budgets than like a TV show. There's almost no money. And I said, well, that's it's okay if it's a good story. And I read a script that's just about a little girl who wants to go live with her mother. And it's, no, RJ. <laughs> and I said, you know, that sort of thing, that simple drama, I guess, would be the genre. I've never really done, you know, I've done hints of it here and there, but nothing like like that. I wouldn't mind trying that. People see me as the big noisy guy, which is fine. I don't mind that. But uh, I don't mind trying something less noisy. <laughs> uh, how much, uh, and especially on these larger pieces, how much, say, uh, in your experience, do you, do you guys get uh, for when... Because without without rests, without space, it becomes it can become noise, and sometimes that, that helps fuel right. what's the action. But how much say do you get in in moment of, of keeping it 
at the edge of exciting before right. it becomes tiring. Yeah. That's a good question. I, maybe I'm fortunate that the directors I work with are open to, I think most directors are very open. They hire you for a reason. They don't mm -hmm. hire you to just say, you're doing this and this, and that's all you're going to do. They, they're always open. They're always asking, what do you think? Is this right? They're, they're insecure, as, as all of us are, for doing the right thing, because it's so subjective. So, but yeah, I, I'm usually the one pushing to calm it down a bit because they're sometimes insecure that the scene might be boring, it's going on too long, and they want it to just feel like pumped up the whole way. And, you know, the scene's actually good, and here's a spot where we can come down and Transformers 4 was a perfect example. We were all, me and the sound effects guys, dialogue editors, we were all like, this is. The first time we screened it through, this is way We're going to kill the audience <laughs> if we put this out there. Because it was just so loud and for so long that we just said, we have to find places to turn it down. It was simple as that. So the, the last month, six weeks we spent, it was kind of, and it's still huge. I mean, you can only go so far with it, we get to that. But we really tried to thin out spots, take the music out even more. Just go to simple, you know, take the drums out so it's not pounding. But, uh, but that's, it's a great question because it's, the audience is always, you have to always think about them. You can't just think, oh, we're having fun, you know, let's make it as obnoxious as we can. You don't want to annoy an audience and have their ears burnt after, after watching it. Just like they want to leave, you don't want them to all want to run away. And you can do that with sound. If it's just so loud, so long, and you know, I don't know, we probably could have been that a little more in spots. I don't know, but, but I think we got to a pretty good place. And Michael's very, that Michael Bay is very uh, keen on sound. He spends a lot of time with me and the sound effects guy, trying to work out so that we're not clashing, and that's another thing that can be annoying. The music and sound are like stepping on each other, so we try to make space. Um, well, is that? Um yeah, I keep I people along. Uh, is, is that, you mentioned working with the, the sound design and everyone else, is that something you're able to be very collaborative on or is there more separation? I try to be as collaborative as I can with those guys. Like, get to know them, like, become their friends. On, on the Michael Bay films, it's always the same guy, same two guys, Ethan and Eric, these really talented guys. So we talk as much as we can and they will... They will, if they hear my music and they send them a piece and they put it in and they go with splashing, they will actually change their sound effects. Maybe it's the pitch, they need to raise it because it's splashing. They'll put it in the same key or they'll, there was an example I always give is a scene I did with a helicopter going above and my music had a rhythm to it. They timed the sound effects of the chopper to be in time with my music which is very subtle, but it's, it's more pleasing to the audience, you know, it feels more, it doesn't feel like two rhythms going on at the same time that don't belong together. So they're great at doing that, and they're very, very willing to, and we know each other for so long that we've done all these movies together. Even, you know, they did Pain and Gain in these non-Transformers movies, so we, we have a good working relationship. But, and even when I, if I don't know them so well, I'll always, I, I kind of know most of the guys now, so that, that helps. But I, and a composer in interacting with the sound effects guys on movies like this is, you have, you kind of have to do it. Because otherwise, once you get to the end, 
it'll be a, a big mess <laughs> if you haven't spoken until that point. Would you do TV again? I would, yeah. I'm doing a little bit. Like I, They offered me this show, The Last Ship. They offered it to me last year. I said, no, I can't. I just can't. I'm doing Transformers. I'll never be able to do both. But I can help get it off the ground. And so I worked a little bit on the pilot and wrote some themes. And then I handed it off to some other composers, one of whom spoke to Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those guys took it over and you know, they're doing a great job. I just didn't have time to do the full-on... And that's like an action movie every week, so I just didn't have time to do that. But I would, I, if the right thing came along. I always enjoy the iconography that goes with so much, particularly of um, action or, or western scoring oh, yeah. genre as well. But um, like porn instantly meets hero, it yeah. ties back to the tradition of you know military bands and everything. Um, are, are there particular sounds or instruments that you like to try to emphasize? Do you tend to go for what is most accessible, or do you like to try to challenge the yeah. listeners? It depends. I keep mentioning Michael Baker, I just spent six months with him, but he's huge on sound that he hasn't heard before. And actually, that goes for a lot of directors. Mm-hmm. I, I got to work with a guy I like a lot, Ruben Fleischer. He's a young guy, a really talented guy who did Zombieland. Mm-hmm. And he did this movie, Gangster Squad, which not a lot of people saw, but it was a period movie about gangsters. Um, and so that was a fun challenge trying to figure out how to do it. He, he didn't want it to be something so old school. He, he wanted something new. So I just kind of messed around with kind of the feeling of the old stuff, but with new sounds. I experimented with different instruments. And until, you know, some electronics are in there as well, even though it's you know, set in whatever, 30s. I still threw in some electronic subs to create this sonic landscape that he said, yeah, this is cool, you know, and it worked for him. So that's, each director is different. I, I, uh, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of guys who, to appreciate, and they want something different. They don't just want horns like you said. Sometimes I'll double the horn with a synth, so it sounds like a horn, but it sounds a little bit kind of edgier or weirder. And a lot of these young directors like that approach. And I, and I have fun making these sounds with my computers and all this. A lot of my time is spent creating, just making sounds before I've even written a note of music. And, uh, well, and to get theoretical for a moment, yeah. uh, one of the things I always enjoy, I'm a, a musician, and so oh. I, I always enjoy when I get to watch a period piece or comedy or drama or whatever, um, and the film takes the perspective that... You know, in the 1700s, the pop music was classical. Yeah. Why limits? But we have different associations with that now. Mm-hmm. Why not convey what it would mean to the? You know, yeah. that, that instead of sticking to that, do you have? Um, but that can be limit limiting and. Right. You know, so I don't know if you have any mm-hmm. thoughts on the challenges of something like that in Gangster Squad. That was. That part of it was taken care of with source music. They actually, before I was even involved, they hired a lot of top musicians to come in. Some of them were on screen playing. And for certain instance, there's one scene where Carmen Miranda's on stage performing at a lookalike scene. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the band is playing, and it's a very special arrangement they did for the, for the film. 
there were that's, there are a few instances of that of music from that time actually being performed on screen. So, and we had specific discussions saying, but that we don't need to do that in the score because it's being represented in all of these songs that are being used. And there were quite a few songs, they're really good ones. And a lot of care went into picking them um, for what would fit best. So that allowed me to not necessarily go that route with the score. And that's been most, I haven't done that many period films, but uh, that, in that case, it was, the director didn't want me to try to incorporate any of that. Is there uh, a particular type of, uh, well I imagine with something like with Transformers, you're, like you say you're constantly creating new sounds and layering using different techniques, is there an instrument or a particular kind of thing you've been like itching to find a way to incorporate? Mm. I don't think so. I think I've used Everything. pretty much, I've used things that I don't know what they are. Because mm -hmm. There's a good friend of mine in LA who when I'm looking for ideas, I'll call him up, and he will bring, literally bring six flight cases the size of this table to my studio. And we'll line them up around my room. It's about this big, and, and we'll, he'll open them. And you know, this is his Asian box, or this is you know, Middle East, and it's all of these things. Some of them he's made. Some of them, so they don't have a name. His friends have made them. So I feel like I've played just about everything. And percussionists, they'll come in with these instruments made out of you know turtles and things, and I, I love just experimenting with that, because you're always looking for a different sound. And there's these great resources in Los Angeles, anywhere really, but LA, I feel like it's a lot of great talented people with huge collections of instruments that I go, oh, you know, that's a good one, and we set that aside. We spend hours just going through before we even recorded anything, and just picking out all the cool instruments that I think might work. And then I get that into my computer and I can process them to make them sound however I want, really. So that's, it's, um, there's not really, I feel like it's unlimited at this point what you can do with a computer. You can make anything you want, really. There's no instrument that I'm dying to use that I haven't used already. There probably is one out there. Had to find it. Yeah. I, I talked to a composer once and uh, he did like a submarine show, so he actually yeah. went on a submarine and oh, yeah. like experimented mm -hmm. with sounds and then ended up incorporating those yeah. sounds into the score. I mean, yeah. have you done things? I have. Yeah, yeah I, I, one, I do it a lot because it's fun. <laughs> I, on Lone Survivor, this movie I did with Pete Berg, where these soldiers kind of get, when they get discovered, they're hiding and they get discovered by these, these goat herders bringing this herd of goats coming up the hill. So I actually recorded goats and processed them. And look, in the score, they just sound like weird wailing sounds, but it's very unsettling. It sounds like, I don't know, animals or something, but could you just slow them down and do all these cool effects? And it's subtle, but it's in there when they're hiding and they're about to get, you know, they're about to get discovered. And I'm just kind of raising the pitch of these goats, and it, it's fun, you know, and nobody's going to notice. So, oh, that's cool, we did goat sound. <laughs> it's just more for me. It's a different sound, and the director thinks it's cool. And that's Battleship. I recorded an MRI machine. And Pete Bird came in one day. Man, I just had an MRI on my neck, that, and I thought of you because this thing makes these crazy sounds. I thought, oh, Jablonski would love this. And I said, you think they let us record that thing? And he's like, yeah, he's his friend has a clinic. He's like, yeah, they'll let you record it. 
So that's the theme of the alien in that movie. It's created 100% out of MRI blips and grinding noises. And it's just fun to us. You know. we, we're at Sulcar. We're doing something different. So you basically use the computer when you make all these different sounds. And I remember yes. I, I used to oh, sound person for Batman 5. Oh, yeah. Four. Uh, we did the first production sound for that. And she actually literally went around and would record, you know, with the old-fashioned recorders. Yeah. Uh, but not, not digital right. tape. Yeah. tape. Oh, tape, nice. Tape, going right. different types of sounds, mm -hmm. trying to get unique sounds yeah. to make right. it look kind of That's unique great. for the Babylon 5. Yeah. When you look at that sound, do you actually uh, do, do you see something different that the average person would see? You would select the doors that we know this. Do you see, do you see something, how that would be laid to a part of a, a script or not? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll hear how it might be useful. Like, I'll be in parking garages and someone will slam my door. And I'll go, oh, I wish I had recorded that. It's just this kind of cool sound. I'm always thinking of ways to... Make something that something simple new. as a door slam yeah. sounds something like a, let's say, a baby. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, this process, you can do a lot with just the door slam. You can make it sound really cool. Right. So you can use a computer mostly for oh, that. Yeah. 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 yeah, now it's easy. You know, you have tons of, but you can get lost in it too. That's part of the problem. Like I'll be working on a sound, I go, three hours just went by. So it's composing on the um, computer with all these um, uh, sample sounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you actually use any live musicians oh, yeah. to yeah. incorporate with that? Sure, yeah. The, the big orchestra. The huge consoles. I do it when I mix. My final mix, I have a big hall. And then I'll redo all the orchestra in a big hall. They're, they're all acoustic. They're all real. It's the weird sounds that are all in my computer. Well, they're telling us we have to. Oh. <laughs> but thank you so much. Well, uh, Dexter is such a, I mean, so, she went on so long and, you know, had so many different, uh, each season such a specific flair with the various villains that they would bring in. I wonder if you would uh, talk about uh, how you shaped, you know, those different seasons to match, you know, the um, John Lithgow's character versus Julia Stiles, like these different, what they brought to the different seasons. Well, um... I would definitely write new themes for every character, every new character. Uh, you know, for Julia Stiles, it became kind of more sympathetic and softer, or I uh, brought in some wind instruments. I mean, Dexter always had his music. For John Lithgow, it was, he was like robotic, and so I used sort of like smashing, steady rhythms that kept going. He really was, you know, like the Energizer Bunny. Evil version. Um, yeah, every season I would try to bring in new themes and new sounds. But I always also would reorchestrate the, the older themes. It's such a blend of comedy and horror on that show. There's so, so many darkly comedic yeah. elements. Uh, how did that Im impact your school? Like, was that more space or different things you would go to to really? add the comedy to those moments? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I've, I've said, you know, that uh, an important aspect of Dexter has always been su supremely dark comedy. And a lot of people are like, no, it's not comedy, it's not dark comedy. But there's, it is a lot of, uh, 
there is a lot of dark, dark comedy. And so I would add, I added an ironic element to the, to the music. Uh, and, you know, from a musical standpoint, that what is irony? Irony is a very hard thing to describe. I mean, if someone says, write me an ironic cue, what does that mean? But generally what it, what it, it's, it has a sort of an ambiguous flavor or it might play against the scene. So it might be a very light music going against the very dark scene. Um, so, yeah, it's, that's really what makes it, I think, interesting and watchable, why, why he's America's favorite serial killer, because it's not just all dark. There is comedy in it. And that, comedy has always been a very important part of horror that people forget. People watch the Friday the 13th in movies, the old ones, and there's always a joke just when the tension is the highest. And that's, people need that release, so that's an important part of any kind of horror or thriller genre is comedy. I'm, I, I tend to overanalyze. I enjoy all of that symbolism and all of that good stuff so this could just be reading too much into it but considering Dexter is a show that is narrated very much and is from the point of view of Dexter much of it um, does that inform your going do you think is that the soundtrack that he is hearing well absolutely the music is is uh, is what you know I'm, I'm accompanying his inner dialogue so um, the music is accompanying his brain you know really is his point of view. It's, it's uh, Michael C. Hall's, Dexter's, uh, you know, song, his theme, basically. So when you when you go and uh, compose for a show on Sundance, I mean, is that just because it's on Sundance, is it automatically going to have, a, like, a different sound? Um, you know, it's as opposed to showtime. You know, as opposed oh, to showtime. Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, much more austere, um, yeah, I mean, it's that's it, definitely it's a, it's, a, it's a tougher crowd, you know, very high standards, and it's great. I mean, for me, it's a real challenge. I mean, you really got to everybody's really top notch on the Sundance. I mean, everybody on the Dexter was top notch as well. I mean, you have to be top notch these days. There's so much competition in television. That it's really great. That's why everyone's trying so hard. There's so much creativity. Is to, to really get attention, you really have to be good now. You, you, know, you can't be just the thing that's on Channel 7 on Wednesday, and nobody you know, nobody has anything else to do, so they watch your show, and you can get away with putting garbage up. Now you really have to put on good quality, or people are going to be like, I'm going to go watch Netflix, you know? <laughs> you know so that's, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we're having such creativity, and, and people call it a golden age of television, because you have to be good. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> uh, well, no, just, you know, composing uh, music for a show on yeah. Sundance versus Showtime, if there is this inherently there's a difference, you yeah. know, that you have to go to a different place. Yeah. So, yeah. And then can you just talk about your approach with the Red Road? You know, it's funny because when I got called about working on the Red Road, you know, they said, oh, this is thriller that takes place... In a, in a Native American reservation, and I'm like, oh wow, this is cool, man. We get all the flutes and all the blah blah blah, and I didn't use a single flute, rattle, shaker, nothing. It's all just like straight, like tension, you know, ambient tension music, and emotional, very like silken, transparent emotional paths and whatever. So my conception of what the show was going to be like is so different from what I ended up doing. 
Well, it was fun, though, because for me, because uh, I reviewed that one week to week, and that really ties in with Jason Momoa's character, who's such a reserved uh, presence on the show, and such, so forceful, but you, he makes you guess. Uh-huh. Um, and so was that a conscious choice by you or the producers, or was that just trying to you know, go with the overall tone of the show? Well, uh, it's going with the overall tone of the show. Uh, a lot of what, you know, frequently what you know, score has to do is, is give, give, permit, give permission to the audience to feel things. You don't make them feel them, but you, you, you give them permission to feel something, or you tell them, you know, you might give them a hint of what to feel. But, but this one had to be super, like, don't push anything, just, you know, like, hang back and, you know, like a fog over the drama. Before I forget, because I wanted to mention earlier, uh, I was looking at your credits, and I have a soft spot in my heart for Kitchen Confidential. Okay. Which I one of like the three people who watched that maybe when it was on, but I thought it was so. Which is where yes. Brad, Bradley Cooper got yeah. his start. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, right after Alias, but yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's such a fun show and very to like compare. Think about the score for that compared to something like Dexter and Red Road. It's completely different sound world, but is there, I mean, with a uh, comedic but dark kind of score for Dexter and then the very intense but but withdrawn uh, or, or, or softer, more restrained score for Red Road, is there a, a different type of sound you'd like to explore or something you're looking for in the future or, or you just kind of wait to see what the different shows need? It's really about what the different shows need. Um, you know, it's actually doing Kitchen Confidential before that, Jake in Progress, is what is how I got the job doing Dexter because I had done straight, you know, like horror thriller and then I just went with a producer into this broad comedy and just because he was my friend he wanted to get me in on it and I, I didn't, really had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it's a whole, writing for comedy is just a completely different kind of approach but um, it's hard. I have to say it's like ten times the amount of work as anything else because it's so subjective. It's like what does the director think is funny? You have to guess what they think is funny. You, what you think is funny has nothing to do with what anybody else might think is funny. So you hope you click with somebody, but it is hard work. How does that balance? I mean, obviously, when you what exactly are you doing here? Who are you? Who are you, who are you pretending to be? The you. That's Christopher Young. I'm Christopher Young. Who are you? It's the beauty of composers. People don't know what they look like. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, that's fine. Okay, cool. Let's do that. So you can follow, a, tend to follow a, a producer, maybe from a project to another project. That's something I've noticed from various uh, Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> composers <laughs> saying. Um, and, uh, and I was wondering, what is it, it seems like it's a very difficult field to break into. And once you do, you do your best to hold on and establish those uh, connections. Is that something that, I mean, I know the music world, the classical music world at least, is that way. It's very much about who you know. Um, how does that, uh, like, how does that impact what, what comes next when you're looking at your various projects? Do you have to, do composers have to pitch? Oh, absolutely. We pitch all the time. Yeah? Yeah. I so mean, you have to pitch ideas. Sometimes you have to write some music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're always, uh, you know, when you're freelance, you're always only as good as your last project, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you don't get your next project, yeah. that, you're not that good, you know what I mean? So you can't really... Uh, you can rest on your laurels for a while, but if you just rest on your laurels, then you're, you're going to stop working. Everyone always has to keep reinventing themselves. 
The same thing with acting. Any, any, or directing or whatever. It's very hard to keep a career going in this business. You have to keep, just like when you started out, you've got to keep making the calls. Pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Oh, sorry. I know you. Well, I was just, I just wanted to know what your process is of how you work with the, you know, the sound supervisors or music supervisors, the whole process of choosing songs for different parts as opposed to score on different projects. How does that, how do you work with all those different departments? I don't, I don't generally get involved too much with the songs, but I do, I do sometimes try and I, if, if there's a space, I did some songs with my nephew uh, for Dexter. He's a very talented, John Lake, a very talented songwriter. Uh, I did some stuff for Network, for ABC, uh, but I, I might make suggestions, but generally I think that's a music supervisor's job. You know, I, I tend to stay out of their hair if they don't need me complicating things. One of the things I noticed, and this is a more general question, and I don't know, Brian, if you have any thoughts on this. I, I did this question last year as well as this year, and it's been all men. Is that common? In totally male-dominated media, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why either. I'll tell you that, that half the people that play on my scores are women. Mm -hmm. and, and the biggest audience for what, say, Dexter or Hannibal is women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, it, I think there's more coming along, but I don't really know. I'm not sure what it is. Apparently the worst is uh, director of photography, DP, cinematographers. Mm -hmm. That's where there's like, and I've worked with one, this woman from Australia who did Red Riding Hood. There's like no women DPs. Yeah. Because there are a few composers, and I think you're right, I think yeah, there are more there's more and more. Out. And I think it's what people get used to, you know, I think it's just like anything, if, as more come along, then more will come after them. But I don't, I don't know why there's so few. It doesn't really make any sense at all. Even just because it is such a relationship-driven business, and it, especially with something like comedy, the wrong music can destroy a scene. So it makes sense that you go with somebody you know and you trust, and so that's the same people uh, you pop up, and it's wonderful for somebody like me who notices the composers. But... Um, but maybe, I don't know if that has to do with it at all. Well, you know, in the film world, it has a lot to do with the people that run the studios. And there's just been a changing of the guard in the last year. So you will see some new blood at Warner's and Fox and Lionsgate. But they would hire the same eight guys for every project. And it's a bummer. And it really does need to change. With television, there's much more because there's more of it. But in the film world... A lot of those old, the old guard, they're gone now. Okay. And maybe that's because of where TV yeah. is. But um, I, I think it's, yeah. like I was saying earlier, I think it's actually a really good time for some good creative stuff to happen. Yeah, no, there's some, and there's some really good uh, female composers coming up right now. Pinar Topaz, very talented. Miriam Cutler is very well known. It's just a, does great work, a lot of work. So hopefully that will inspire more women. But even even like I don't know, even it's, it is funny though because I, if you go to USC film class, it's probably mostly men there too. I don't know, like, for some reason, men are drawn. To this, they seem to be drawn more than women. Maybe is that seem true? Or, that'd be a Chris Young question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Christopher would know. 
Well, and then another thing, trend is um, obviously the Dexter soundtrack is coming out. The Hannibal soundtrack is coming out. Is that something that because I, I love uh, TV and film scores, so I'm always I've been saying that they, those should be released more for years. Is that do you think that's going to be a growing trend? Well, it is a trend. Mm -hmm. I've put a soundtrack out of everything I've ever done. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I've put out a record of pretty much everything I've ever done, too. Okay. It's important for it, but I come from the world of making records. Mm -hmm. So to me, yeah. I think it's important. You want, yeah, I mean, it's, Wait, are you just now putting out a Dexter for no, the first I put, time? I put, I put one out every season. Oh, okay. right. Yeah, yeah. So this is the last one, yeah. yeah. So maybe it's just. Someone like myself, if, I, if you're not seeking it out, it doesn't get as, as promoted. Yeah, most of the labels, they don't even, they do nothing except put it out. Mm -hmm. They don't right. spend right. money on no. marketing it. I mean, you do some shows. I do shows, yeah. I don't know if they help you with that. Probably not. No, Maybe I mean, well, yeah, they help me promote it. That's they didn't, no. It help it me financially. I still had, if, if I didn't sell tickets, it still cost me money. But, um, but yeah, no, that's been good. And um, I, I, I just, it's just you want to have like a record of what you do, you know. And I actually spend, I, I said this in the panel, like I will finish Dexter. Let's say I finish Dexter in November, December. I'll take a couple months off, and I swear to God, I work on the CD from February until. June, because I'm going and I'm doing all the things that I didn't have time to do. I'm going through remixing everything. I'm re-recording things. I'm, uh, and on the last one, I actually did work with uh, singer-songwriters and did two songs, and I remixed three uh, things from the live concert. So. Great. Well, it's it's. I mean, I'm always pro more music getting out there. More rep, more. Um, awareness for TV fans of just how important a role uh, music plays in, in especially, you know, comedies and dramas on TV. And, you know, I'm, though I, I, I'm always fascinated by reality scoring as well, like what that, what that is and how that, that works. But I'm sorry. Reality I, TV scoring. Yeah, yeah. Some of it's just amazing to me. Yeah. As is a lot of the food network stuff, like yeah. those shows. Yeah. Oh, it's mostly library oh, yeah. in general, yeah. Like, Some scoring scenes, but mostly people just write a library and they cut it back. They kind of cut it back and yeah. forth. Yeah. Well, um, I think I'm actually, for once, out of questions. Right. Well, thank, yeah. you thank you so much. Very good questions, though. Oh, thank you.